Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning and welcome to P.I.'s Declassified. Thank you for joining the show. Uh, Today... Uh, we have a little bit different tack than what we normally do. My guest is John Parizzo. John is a licensed private investigator in New York State. And what he's going to be telling us about, he he actually, um, I believe, John, you specialize in missing persons cases. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay. And you, um, you were in... You did a lot of missing persons cases while you were with the PD's office, correct? Yes, while I was in the NYPD, I did it for five years. Okay, so let's talk about that just for a second before we get into our topic today. So um, tell us how, tell us about your background, a little bit about your background, how long you were with New York PD and, and how you got into missing persons cases. Yes, I joined the NYPD in 1993. I was young. I was 23 years old. It was a lifelong dream of mine. It was something that is quite common in Queens, New York. A lot of people become city workers. A lot of police officers come out of this neighborhood. So it was not uncommon for what I did. So I went to the police department and started out on patrol and all that stuff. But I always, I always wanted to be a detective, investigate cases. So I strive for that. And uh, I got a little sidetracked. I had um, made supervisor, so I was a sergeant on patrol, but still at the same time just answering 911 calls. I used to see the detectives, and I would see them come out to the scene and, and finish off where I started. So many times there would be assaults, burglaries, robberies, and I knew there was much more to those stories than just taking a report or arresting a person. It was mm-hmm. a much bigger picture. And those detectives, they, I watched how they... I watched how they worked on them, and I couldn't believe how quickly sometimes they closed cases, catching the bad guy, and very interesting. So as I was a sergeant on patrol, I, I got called to the Internal Affairs Bureau. So the Internal Affairs Bureau of the NYPD, it's, they, um, they take you as a supervisor, and they give you investigative experience. And I actually got way more investigative experience than I even expected out of there, because when you have a case against a police officer, they they really go above and beyond to try to clear that officer. And most of them are cleared of any charges, or at least most of the charges. So there's a big investigation and supervisors do it. So I did internal affairs for two years and I had some high profile cases there, but internal affairs was never what I expected to do in the NYPD. So mm-hmm. I was glad I did it, got a lot of experience. So after my two years, a bunch of other units were looking at me because we, um, it comes with a lot of experience, like I said before. So the missing person squad had contacted me and uh, some people in detective work don't consider that the most glamorous work, which definitely it's not the most glamorous work, but it it was very interesting to me. And it's something I had wanted to do. And Mm. um, I went to the missing person squads. I took my investigative experience that I had and um, I went to the unit and I was amazed at the volume of cases, which was, 7,000 a year come through the NYPD. A lot of people are surprised by that number, but the the 7,000, really vast majority of them are closed right away. 
Hmm. Because they're, because they're runaways or why, why are most of them closed? Majority are runaways. There's a lot of, I don't know about other cities, but New York city has a lot of group homes and uh, those group homes are very dysfunctional, unfortunately. So there's a lot of running away and coming back and running away and very confusing on who these runaways are. They're all juvenile. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of runaways that come home. There are a lot of elderly missings that are found in nursing homes and hospitals. Uh, there mm-hmm. are a lot of suicides. So okay. those are majority of the cases. It's not like television when, you know, the socialite in Manhattan <laughs> goes to Central Park and disappears. Those cases happen, right. but they're very rare and they get a lot of attention when it happens. Right. But the run of the mill case, yeah, the run of the mill case doesn't get that attention. Okay. So interesting. So, um, how long were you assigned to that unit? I was assigned to that unit for five years. I retired out of there. My last five years in the NYPD, uh, which was my most experience I had, I was the most knowledgeable I had. Uh, that's where I worked out of. And I, I put a lot of work into those cases. Besides that volume, I was the supervisor of the cases. So the volume came in. I had eight detectives assigned to me. Those eight detectives did a great job. Like I said, they cleared 90 to 95% of those cases. Mm-hmm. So it was that 5% that was, it could have been a suicide that the body wasn't found, mm-hmm. which would mean that they would park their car on a bridge. And uh, we know when a car's parked on a bridge and the person's not there, it, it, what happened, but you have to prove it. There are un- unclaimed bodies that you try to match it to. Then there is the husband and wife who a husband or a wife reports somebody missing and it doesn't sound right. And it's uh, mm-hmm. we can't prove it's a homicide, but we firmly believe it is. But it's a missing person until it becomes a homicide. Right. Right. And, and is there uh, in New York, is there a time period before you can declare it a missing person? There actually is not. And television is that's one thing that television is putting out that is confusing the public. And I think that's a mistake. I remember as a kid watching that 24 hours, 24 hours. And I've had Mm -hmm. people contact us in 24 hours to the minute. And I knew why that was happening because they're watching the television shows. Those television shows are not correct on that. And um, there are cases that it's not a missing person. If an adult is home and he, you know, has an argument with a significant other and walks out the door, you know, eight hours later, you can't say they're missing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, if there's other circumstances, if there, uh, you know, if there's blood in the car, if there's a suicide note, yes, we have that. But so there is no 24 hours. So this is the, the advice I give people in, in any type of missing person case. If, if you truly believe it is a missing person, you contact the police and they're the experts on it. And almost always they have it right. It, there are cases you have to, we used to say, hit the pavement right away, especially with mm-hmm. younger children. You never take that chance. You know, you will always investigate that case right away. That right. Sometimes it could be as simple as it's been on the wrong school bus, but you can never take that chance. So if it's a minor, you would react immediately. But if it's an adult, maybe not, depending on the circumstances. I'm not saying that's definite, but if um, a mother calls and says her 10-year-old son didn't come home from school, we used to say the bells and whistles are going to go off, which means that everybody's mm-hmm. going to jump out into the street and we're going to get right on that. And um, as any parent would, you're concerned for that. As an adult, there are other circumstances. There, there is a lot of cases when, you know, someone might have had too much to drink the night before. They fell in the street. There are John Doe in the hospital. And, 
you know, they somebody will get notified, but it takes some time. You can't automatically right. dismiss that, but we've I've had cases with social media where they're saying on social media that they're leaving the state and somebody's trying to pile somebody's trying to report them missing. But if you looked at the social media, they, they were leaving that, that other person that they're not missing. So and and then when you left the department, you decided to specialize in missing persons? Yes, I retired. I like most cops, you know, we're very typecasted into our work. And um, I, I went back to uh, private security. And as I was doing private security, people were reaching out to me in regards to missing person cases I had done and asking me advice, people in the, the PI world. So I joined um, I joined an organization called the Society of Professional Investigators. They're, they're in mm-hmm. New York City. They meet yes, once I'm familiar a with month. Them. Oh, so you yeah. know about them. Yes, there's a lot I of did. talent there. And yeah. podcasters, they, podcasters, everything. They have elderly home abuse cases, Airbnb. So while I was there, they were constantly asking me questions about missing person cases. And it was great. It was really good to to hear that all after a couple of years. And I, I realized to myself, if I have all this experience from the missing person squad that the NYPD gave me, no, no matter all the problems the NYPD has, they give a lot of experience to their workers and had all that experience. I wasn't going to let it go to waste. If I could help people, which would be a, a detective, I mean, a private eye, if I could help a family member. So I said, yes, I'm helping people. Why don't I get back into it? So I started my, the PI license and I got licensed in New York state and I didn't want to do the run of the mill cheating husbands, uh, cheating wives. You know, there are people that do that, but to me to stay in a in a crappy hotel at two in the morning, I've done that already. <laughs> That's not what I wanna I don't wanna right. be sitting there and having those people call nine one one on me and tell me I'm harassing them. I've been there and I don't have patience for that. Um I give credit for the people that do it, but that's not for me. It's not the cases I take. So I I gravitated back to the missing person cases and there's a there's another group called Private Investigators for the Missing, and I got involved with them, and they do nonprofit work. They have a mm-hmm. lot of talent in their organization, and uh, they do nonprofit work, and I help them out on their cases, and they, they take a case that is cold. Um, I consider a case cold after 10 years, but there are times earlier it is a cold case. Most of their cases are cold, which means that the detectives have, in other states, have done all the work they can or should have done all the work they can. And the mm-hmm. family quite often isn't happy that they feel the police aren't doing the work. As I dig into those cases, uh, the few I did, I've realized that the police have. It's just that the family's either confused or they'll have a, how do you say this? They'll have a bad rapport with the detective, which mm-hmm. I think is a mistake. If any family members have that, they, they need to not argue with the police over it. Right. Because Almost always they're doing their job. And if there's a mistake or if there's something that is viewed as a mistake, quite often it's not. It's that there's a good chance they're looking at something as a homicide and they cannot go and put out public information on a homicide. And Mm -hmm. I won't investigate a case that is a homicide. I'm looking at one right now that was brought to me, a nonprofit. And from what I see, it it, it seems like it's being investigated as a homicide. So besides the search, which would have to still be approved by the local police, I, I wouldn't touch that case and I would prefer... I would advise others not to take a case like that. But often cases are reported to the police. So how do you determine or do they t- or do, does the local police department tell you that they're looking at it possibly as a homicide? How do, well, so how do you, where it gets, how do you make that determination? Hello? Yeah. 
um, it gets a little gray area here. And this is where I step in because I have experience in missing person cases. So when I speak to a law enforcement agency, and quite often I'm from New York City, I'm calling law enforcement agencies that have five people and they're based out of Kentucky. So, right. <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. It seems there's a lot of missings coming out of Tennessee, Kentucky, Texas, and the Pacific Northwest. And that's all I could do a whole podcast on where that's coming from. But mm-hmm. there's um, some interesting stuff in all those places. So quite often, I'll reach out to detectives. And before I reach out to them, I'll do all the social media searches. I'll check all the um, GoFundMes and everything. I won't contact the family. Well, actually, I will contact the family before the officer. If the family doesn't call me back, I do not contact the officer directly. Because if the family's not contacting me, it doesn't sound good for me to to call a small town sheriff when the family's not even talking to me. So it seems like I don't want to get involved in something like that. And that is a situation I'm dealing with right now. So once I spoke to the family and I get more information, now this is where I, I guide other persons doing missing person cases. When you deal with missing persons, you have to ask the direct questions and you have to start with the person's vice. Very, very often, the person that is missing has a vice attached to them, a vice as in gambling, drugs, prostitution, and you have to even narrow it down to what type Mm -hmm. of, where are they going for the gambling? Um, Are they frequenting prostitutes or are they prostituting themselves? And if it's drugs, you need to narrow it down to heroin, crystal meth, because both of those type of drugs have different type of missing persons attached to it. Right. And so, yeah, there's a lot to that. How often do you run into sex trafficking, human trafficking? I ran into that very often in the NYPD. Sex trafficking is the one thing that the media has correct. And, you know, years ago, I remember as a kid in the 70s, it was always, you know, the guy driving around in the big Cadillac that with a fur hat. And now that person is online and they're younger. Mm-hmm. So in the missing persons of the NYPD, we used to get runaways from group homes. These runaways, like I said earlier, are from very dysfunctional homes. And they're usually 15 to 16 from a dysfunctional home for many reasons. And they'll meet a guy online. I say a guy because it's almost always a female. They're all, they're all boys that get involved in this, but it's almost always a girl. They'll meet an older guy online. Usually 15-year-old meets a 32-year-old. He tells up. I have money. Come out, see me. We used to have a lot of cases when they went from New York to New Jersey. I don't know why. I think every state might have something similar, but it seems like New York missings go to New Jersey. I, I can't mm-hmm. explain it. But so they go to New Jersey and they, this person is not a boyfriend. And these young girls are getting pulled into this online and, and there's clothes bought and it's a whole process. And then they're the boyfriend and now they're having an affair with an older a relationship with an older gentleman, which is illegal anyway for their age group. And then next thing you know, they're in a hotel room and this takes, this could happen as quickly as five days to a week before meeting this person. They're in a hotel room and the guy tells them, you're going to be my girlfriend. You have to make money. Look at all this money you make. I'll buy you this. I'll buy you that. And they're in a hotel room, usually a very cheap hotel. And there's a line of guys coming in and out. And uh, I hear those stories afterwards. And it's, it's very sad, but that's a question you need to ask a mother who has a child that went missing you say is there any chance this is going on and parents don't want to admit that and it's you have to ask right. that direct question now i ask that direct question almost always on a juvenile but for every time i ask that question i would say about half the time i'm not being told the truth i believe they think we're not going to take it seriously but that's a mistake on the person 
dealing with the police because now I lose the angle of the vice to look at. Right. So what's the possibility of them not actually knowing what's going on? The parent? Yeah. Uh, well, like I said, the families are dysfunctional. So it's quite common to have a 15-year-old with a 30-year-old mother and the, 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 the runaway's boyfriend is the same age as the mother's boyfriend. And mm-hmm. that's quite common. And so it's a very good chance that the mother is involved in something that she shouldn't be involved in, not to that level. She may not know. Um, I personally believe a lot do know, but there, I had to tell parents that, you know, your daughter is constantly being seen at these prostitution locations. And I could hear, I could hear the distress in the mother's fo- in the mother over the phone, but I have to tell them that. And that's my suspicion on these cases. So when I see it directly, and if they don't know it, I have to tell them that because that's how we will look at this as a trafficked child. Okay. So, so John, uh, if somebody is in, if somebody's listening, because we have a lot of people that aren't private investigators are listening, somebody's listening and they want to find their child. Um, do you want them to contact you? Yes, I, I, I'm a, a licensed private eye in New York State. If it is a okay. case, I cannot. If it's a case, I cannot do, which means it's out of state. I have a network of people. If it's a cold case, um, I have a network of people that do cold cases, but. I never turn down people's, if they need advice, uh, I never okay. turn that down. I always help them with their case. They could reach out to me. I'll, I'll hopefully in the show notes, you'll put that all in. They could reach out to me, uh, email me or reach out to me on LinkedIn. I don't do cases when a family member takes someone out of the country. That's something that is um, very out of my scope. Mm-hmm. Those are the types of cases I, I, I don't do. So why don't you give a, and, folks yeah. a way to contact you in case there's that kind of a situation? Yeah, you can con- you can find me on LinkedIn under my name John Ferriso, F E R R I S O, or you can email me at ferris. Protection at gmail dot com. Email me, and uh, I will um, at the very least I'll email you back. Even if it's a case I don't take, I'll email you back. I'm always open for that. Okay, could you spell the email for us? F E R R I S. There's a dot. Protection, P-R-O-T-E-C-T-I-O-N, at gmail.com. Okay, great. And, and what does Ferris represent? Uh, my last name is for Ferris with an O, so I just... Um, okay. <laughs> it's, uh, actually, it means iron. It means iron in Latin and Italian, so I, I always like that saying, Ferris, so that's where my okay. name comes from. Cool. So is your company a Ferris Detective Agency? No, I'm just a PI agency, a, a one-man team. Oh. But like I said, I have a very large network of people. Oh, no, I mean the name of your, your agency. It's an LLC. No, what is the name of it, though? Oh, oh, Ferris Investigations. Sorry about okay, that. Okay, that's what I was getting at. Letter. Yeah, that's what I was getting at. Okay, well, thank you for sharing all of that information, John. I appreciate that. But as I started to say at the beginning of the program, um, this is going to be a little bit different tack than we normally do regarding investigative issues. But I thought it was so interesting that you were a first-person witness to the events of September 11th, uh, 2011, uh, 2001. As we yeah. know, 9-11. And I, I just wanted 
to you to talk about that because I'd like you to start with the beginning of the day and what kind of a day it was and then you know your role as the day progressed sure sure great um as i wrote in that the short story i wrote that got published i i remember that day like it was yesterday it was i could honestly relive almost moment to moment and it's like a movie that i've watched over and over that i just mm -hmm. can't forget and uh, not in a bad way just and it's um, something I do think about every day. I used to hear stories when I was a kid. I think about this every day. I think 9-11 is something I think about every day. And uh, not in a bad way, but it, it does cross my mind at some point. Like even today, it's a beautiful, sunny day now in New York. And it was a beautiful, sunny day on that day. And I was working at that time. I was still a police officer. I was not detective or missing persons yet. Still a police officer. I had um, 11 years as a police officer, I was working at one police plaza, which is actually a half mile from the Twin Towers. I call it the Twin Towers because to me, that's when we grew up. That's who it was. And I would walk past the towers every day and I would see the shadow of the building and it would go all the way to one police plaza. And to fast forward to September 11th, it was a beautiful sunny day. I walked into the building and I was ready to get promoted to sergeant. So I was transferred there and uh, I was a short stint at one police plaza. So I never expected it to be memorable, but it was. So as I was sitting at my desk, I was doing some type of data entry that the NYPD needed at the time. So I heard this sound, which sounded like something fell off the roof, something large, like a truck, because there was construction going on. So everybody turned to the window and one of my supervisors ran and he looked out the window, pointed and he screamed and said, Everybody needs to get up and see this. So as I ran to the window, I saw a giant hole in one of the towers with papers flying out of it like confetti. And I couldn't understand where these papers were coming from because I didn't know the magnitude. So I immediately assumed a bomb was put in it because I remembered the 1992 bombings because I've been a New York City resident my whole life in 1992, which a lot of people forgot. They had put a bomb in that in 1992. So I thought, so this is before cell phones. So I went downstairs and I called my wife on a payphone, put a quarter in, called my wife's payphone. I said, a bomb was just put in the Twin Towers and they're going to send me there. They're going to send all of us there. I'll call you back later. And my wife didn't know yet. She worked uptown, but she didn't know what was going on. So I hung up the phone. I went upstairs and as I watched the building, it, I saw stuff falling from the building and I was like, what it keeps falling from the building? What keeps falling from the building? And I noticed that it was nothing falling. It was people jumping from the building. And it was oh, a horrible wow. sight to see, but I do talk about it because um, it's what I saw. And I, I, saw, I saw that, and it was very disturbing because I couldn't look out the window anymore. So I went back to my desk, and I went downstairs, and a lot of us were out in front of the building. And we went back upstairs, and... When we went back upstairs, I watched and I saw a white streak of smoke coming from across Manhattan. And I didn't know what it was. And it got closer and closer. And it, it was the second jet that hit the tower. And when it hit the tower, it took a few seconds for the sound to hit us. And it vibrated across the building. And the whole building just imploded. And I saw stuff flying out of all sides of it. And we all just evacuated the building. And 
we ran outside, and I couldn't believe what I was witnessing. I was witnessing the two towers, and I said, America's under attack at this moment. Something's going on, and this wasn't an accident. And a couple of us ran uptown a few blocks, and as we were running uptown, we heard a rumbling sound. And I didn't know what it was, and the first tower had collapsed. And it was behind us, and the smoke was heading in my direction. And as I ran, I, I dove to a, um, a wheel of a car, and there was a woman next to me, and I could see the fear in her face, and we just stared at each other, and it was very odd. And we sat there for only a few seconds, but I noticed the smoke didn't make it up. But the rumbling sound sounded like a subway under us because the rumbling from the tower fell. Mm. Wow. Uh, Manhattan started emptying out, like, very quickly. And as it was emptying out, I was the only one going back towards the towers while everybody was heading in the other direction. So and I kept getting stopped by cops. Where are you going? Because I wasn't in uniform. And, and then I went back. And as I got back to one police plaza, there was one police recruit standing there. And I guess he had lost his coworkers somewhere in the crowd. So as I was talking to me, he handed me a paper mask. And we looked over. And the second tower leaned over onto itself and fell down like a deck of cards into it. Oh my and goodness. instantly the smoke shot up and headed back in our direction. And it was a strange rumbling sound, like a wall. It was the oddest sound I've ever heard. And it headed towards us. And I ran. And as I could run, I could hear it coming from behind me. And I was near the Brooklyn Bridge at the time. So there was a lot of people on the Brooklyn Bridge. And the smoke overtook the Brooklyn Bridge. And I ran a few blocks. And I was able to get the smoke was behind me and the debris was behind me because I was a half a mile from it. And then I was there, one police plaza, and there were people sitting on the floor. They couldn't breathe. Um, I, I was okay. I didn't have any of that effect. And then I ran into a few coworkers of mine, and they were looking at us like we didn't know what to do. It was, there was nobody in Lower Manhattan. Phones went dead, everything. So we started directing traffic. And then I directed traffic for, I believe, 15 hours after that. Uh, I let the emergency vehicles in. The injured came out. Uh, some injured did walk, very few. They didn't either come in our direction or... Like we all know now, the injured did make it out. And uh, like I said, I directed traffic for 15 hours, and uh, I I was ready to go for 24 hours. That was no problem. So it was never an Don, assignment me, given to us. It's just something we did. Let me interrupt you here, if I could. Uh, we, we need to t pause for a minute and take a commercial. Sure. I'd like to come back uh, and ask you some questions about this, okay? So we'll be right back. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. 
For a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at PISdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. So we're back after our commercial break. And John, I think I've been pronouncing your last name wrong. So is it Fariso or Friso? Fariso. Fariso, okay. So <laughs> I'm with John Fariso, former New York uh, police officer and now a private investigator in New York State. And we're talking about his uh, experiences, his first person experiences the day the New York uh, World Trade Towers fell due to uh, a terrorist um, terrorist activity. So I'm interested, I know I know you live this all the time. I know you can probably remember every single detail, but as you saw when the second tower fell, and as you saw that smoke heading your direction, tell me what Tell me what that was feeling like, what you were hearing. What was going through your mind well, at that point? Oh, uh, it's the fight or flight. It's definitely adrenaline kicked in. And, you know, if anyone has been in a situation, I think I might have run the fastest I've ever run. Hmm. And, you know, I had dress shoes on, my khakis and my 38 on my hip. But I think I outran a lot of people. Yeah. And it, the smoke behind me was a... It was, I call it smoke, but it was, the debris was so thick. It was like a bag of cement got dropped on the floor and went in the air, but thousands of times. It wasn't smoke. It was pulverized debris that Mm -hmm. was coming. And you hear it rumbling and you could hear it from behind you getting closer and closer. Mm -hmm. And as I was running, I saw an odd thing, which was pigeons, New York City pigeons walking on the floor. I don't. To this day, I don't know. I guess they have some instinct. They stopped flying and they walked. I don't know if they knew what was coming. Interesting. It was the weirdest thing. I remembered I ran past them and it was anger. I was, was angry that, you know, they, they attacked my country. They attacked my city. I mean, mm-hmm. I couldn't believe what I was. I knew as a cop, I was going to see crazy things. I never expected this. So was there, I got to the was point there where a I smell? Was there a smell? Yes, there was. There was, as I stopped, I I stopped and I finally stopped and turned and I saw the smoke and debris. It was about a block, maybe two blocks from where I was. So, and it was going towards the Brooklyn bridge. So the Brooklyn bridge kept coming in and out of people walking on it, like visible. There was an odd smell of burnt plastic and cement. Hmm. That, that was the smell. I, I would describe it like that. Almost like burnt wires, like um, electrician wires, very strange hmm. smell. And uh, that was uh, very common for days. And and you mentioned that people were running across the Brooklyn Bridge. How many people did you see? Could you estimate? 
oh, it was it was a sea of people. I mean, uh-huh. anybody that watches the videos from 20 years old, there was a sea of people on the Brooklyn Bridge at every bridge. Anyone who's been to Manhattan knows it's hard to get out of Manhattan. What's interesting is when I had run to China, Chinatown earlier, I noticed very few people were getting in the subway. And I understood that. I wouldn't want to be trapped in the subway. Right. So yeah, it makes sense. I'm going to be trapped. It's above. <laughs> and very few people got into that subway. I can't remember seeing anybody. And so, and plus the train stopped, but I didn't see anybody waiting for any trains to get into those stations. So I saw this sea of people and the smoke kept stopping and mixing with the people. And then you would see groups of people. Then the smoke would take it over like fog. It was, it was like a movie and, but it was real. And I knew it was real. And then, like I said earlier, I had pulled my wife from a payphone, and I says, oh my gosh, she thinks I'm at the towers. I got to get back to the phone and call her. So I had this unbelievable desire to get home. And right. I thought about walking that Brooklyn Bridge home. I thought about just leaving and I couldn't do it, but it, I'm not going to say it didn't cross my mind. And I, mm-hmm. I've heard stories of, you know, people that the desire to get home was unbelievable, but I had a duty to do that day. Even if it was just directing traffic, um, I wow, could not uh, leave. Yeah, it's just safe Staring spot. at those people leave was, hello? How, how long did it take you to get a hold of your wife again? I believe it was 8 o'clock at night. Wow. The phones were down in Manhattan, so my wife had been calling family members of mine and I had been calling family members of mine, but if anyone plays telephone, it was, uh, and people were calling me at one police plaza and the phone lines were down. So it was, um, there was a lot of concerned phone calls going back and forth. So my wife had walked home on a separate bridge. So I was pretty concerned she was okay, but she was not concerned for me. Eventually, I had gotten in touch with my father, who had gotten in touch with my brother-in-law, who had gotten in touch with my wife, but I'm talking almost 12 hours. Yeah. Well, I, well, like I said I before. Thought, <laughs> I would have thought your wife would have been frantic, knowing you were where you were that day. She was. Um, I Like I said, it was 12 hours gap in between, and um, I guess, like anybody else, she was more uptown than I was. She kept some composure, and that was one very ironic thing and very few people very few people couldn't handle the situation almost everybody was able to get themselves up and away very few people couldn't function and anyone who couldn't was definitely helped along by numerous people because i watched a woman running in high heels and fall directly on her face Mm. and i walked over to the woman and i saw other people pick her up and carry her and i saw a a police recruit just sit on the floor and not know what to do. And I picked that girl up. I said, you got to get up. You got to go. Amazing. I, you know, I, obviously we've all seen those hor- horrific photographs of people running with a huge cloud, heavy, heavy cloud following them, running out of it. And yet the debris all flying everywhere. And we've seen the, you know, the control, the uh, world trade center fall. We've all seen that, but, to live it is a whole different experience. Um, I mean, certainly we all lived it, but it wasn't like being there for sure. So I, it's really interesting to me to hear how you are describing it. So, John, looking back, is there anything you would have done differently? In regards to 9-11? Yeah. Would anything you, that you would have done differently that day or or... Afterwards, 
No, I, uh, well, one thing is hindsight 20 years later, I'll get to that, but I wouldn't have called my wife and told her I was going to the towers and put that stress on her for all those hours. <laughs> uh, it's the family joke now, but it's talked about quite often in my family and it's before cell phones. So anyone who remembers times when you didn't have a cell phone, these things right. were possible. Uh, looking back now, I wouldn't have put my trust in the paper masks that were given to us. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to get too into that, but we were given uh, paper spackle masks and expected to breathe in this uh, wall of debris. Uh, back, looking back now, we should have demanded the proper respirators, which were not given to us. And uh, I know people who have passed away from 9-11 exposure. More cops have passed away from 9-11 exposure than actually the 23 NYPD that died that day. Yeah. So I know that's uh, looking true. back now, I don't know if I could have attained a better mask, but I would have prepared for that more. Well, we're very familiar with masks today. <laughs> I think we probably would all do things a little differently regarding masks, for sure, because we know what masks are all about. We know which ones are, besides respirators, it's probably you should have had, uh, but the mask uh, we know a lot about. Yeah, Anything that brought else? back that memory when COVID. <laughs> when I wore the sorry, mask, say that, I, I say that. I'm sorry. Say that when, again. When COVID started, I thought about the masks all over again. Yeah, yeah I'll bet you did. I'll bet you did. Um, so, did the after 9/11, did the police department or supervision talk about that they should have given everybody uh, more protection? I don't remember it talked about. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. I mean, it really is something that every, in today's world, with uh, all the threats that are going on around the, around the country, I mean, it seems to me every police department should be ready for that. I'm sh- well, I'm- 9-11 changed police work change police work forever uh, and uh it was almost like everything stopped and we we the playbook was rewritten after that uh whether mm-hmm. it's terrorism or not things are looked at very differently after 9-11 because i grew up in new york city i never expected my city to be attacked of so, course not. as the police at the time our, our role changed yeah of course i mean it's interesting when you talk about uh pay phones because you don't see payphones. I remember running around. That was the era of the pager, right? That was the, when we all had pagers. And when you got a page, you went to find a, a payphone to call the, call back and find out what the page was all about, right? Oh, I'm sure somebody tried to page somebody to call them back. But uh, I don't know if anybody would want to wait at a payphone that day. But, uh, yeah, I never thought of that. There was pagers. Very few people had cell phones. so um, Right. Oh, yeah. There were those yeah. big hunky ones. <laughs> yeah, the ones there was, there was, there was some big ones, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I, and recently I saw a working payphone in Northern California that was on the wall of some someplace I was at. It was really interesting. I took a picture of it because it was so unusual because I haven't seen him for years. Yeah, you know, nostalgia, I guess. And uh, I wrote some police short stories besides my 9-11 story I wrote. I wrote some just, I wrote 64 short stories. And uh, I mentioned payphones in a few of the stories because it's so nostalgia of New York City at the time. Right. Yeah. I mean, they just practically don't exist. 
I'm surprised they even have the network. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I think they need to keep a few at Bridges and uh, maybe Times Square and stuff like that for emergencies. I don't. I hope they don't totally go out. Yeah, yeah. But on the other hand, you know, um, if you think about our telephone communication, our cell phones aren't that secure. If the if the telephone towers go down, we don't have phone service. Yes, that is uh, that did happen on nine eleven. They the the phones in Lower Manhattan went out, and um, yeah. I don't know about cell towers then. Like I said, I didn't know anybody personally with a cell phone. I know I worked with people with cell phones, but it wasn't like we he was automatically giving it to us to use. So, you know, there was a whole thing with minutes and everything back then, and service, mm-hmm. and it was very different. They were big blocky phones. You know, the younger <laughs> audience understand that, but it was an issue. Yeah, for sure. So um, back to reflecting on anything you would have done differently. Um, I, I know you said you wouldn't have called your wife and told her you were going, going to, the, to the towers, but um, I, think, I actually think you probably would. You would have called your wife and told her what you were doing. I would have lied in that thought. situation. I would have said, Dick, send us uptown and uh, we're going to be by Times Square. <laughs> I wouldn't have, yeah. I wouldn't yeah. have worried her like that. Yeah, for sure. So, um, so you said you directed traffic. Um, did you ha- did you have to go help with the evacuations at the towers? Actually, no. Because what happened was when I met up with my coworkers, we, there was no direction, and it was very haphazardly put together. Um, mm-hmm. So, different supervisors took their groups for different things. There, there, there was a group that rushed to the towers. And uh, one person that worked in my building didn't come back, and he got killed that worked in my building. So other groups of people were later identifying dead bodies. We were the ones who directed traffic. Um, I know there was other groups that did different functions, but somewhere someone made a dis- command decision on the scene or came from above. But we, uh, I think directing traffic was very important because there was I – pu- I sent fire trucks in and – and, you know, ambulances were coming out with debris on the top of it, and the debris oh, was wow. flying into the air. And there was patients, you know, in those ambulances. And there was concerned people who were looking for missing family members that approached us. And, you know, we had to judge who gets through and who doesn't. And uh, if anyone reads my story, I, I, I put cop humor never ends. So there is a little cop humor even with that about a, a woman that was more concerned about her parrot. I said, and, I read that. <laughs> I read that. Talk, talk about that, John. Yeah, this woman kept coming to the group of us trying to get through and trying to get through. And she was upset. And we were talking to her. And she kept telling me she had to get to her apartment. She had to get to her apartment. And then, you know, I always question everybody about everything. Was I'm like, why do you need to get to your apartment? What's going on? And then it was like, I need to get inside. I need to pick up items. No, can't do that. Can't let you throw. It's dangerous. The buildings are falling. And, you know, we, we still thought there was still more planes in the sky. We didn't know at the time what was going on. We were waiting for more attacks. That I wrote about that. And the woman kept kind of badgering me. And, you know, she was, she was saying over and over again, I need to get my apartment. My window's open. I was like, do you have somebody inside? No. What do you need to do? My parrot. Your parrot. My parrot. And I'm saying to myself, the parrot probably flew out of the window with those pigeons I saw. So, <laughs> so I told the woman, 
you know, I got in the face, and if anybody had seen me, they were like, wow, what's going on here? But that was the day. I said, nobody cares about your effing parrots. You need to leave. Go uptown. Go, go somewhere else. I don't know if someone else let her through, but there was – you'd be surprised on – you get people concerned for their family safeties, and you get other people just want a good picture. And I had that too. I had, you know, photographers trying to sneak through, and it's sad, but, you know, you have to make decisions. But I wasn't letting a lady through to see if a parrot was okay. Well, I wonder if she ever got her parrots. I wonder if they survived. <laughs> I'm an animal lover, and I'm sure that a parrot was okay. <laughs> and if it wasn't, you know, it's the scope of that day. There was a lot of things going on. But everybody, you know, everybody handled that day differently, and some people – yeah. couldn't handle the situation and some handled it very well. Let's put That's the best way yeah. to explain it. For sure. For sure. So I, I was interested, you mentioned several times in your article, John, that um, you were keeping people from going through one police plaza. What was the reason for that? Why was that? Well, there was already people that were trying to get through for, we weren't sure for their reasons. Um, there was a lot of rumors circulating that day about other planes and, one rumor was true, but the other ones were not. And so we were very concerned about our physical safety. There was concerned about more terrorists. Um, I know that one police plaza was not utilized by the mayor's office because they thought it was a target. So they went somewhere else that was not a target. And they considered one police plaza a target. And, you know, we, we kind of understood that when we were there. Mm-hmm. And, and we, we and decided said- who got through. You, and you said that Rudy Giuliani wanted to do a, a press conference right there, and you, you couldn't let him do that. Well, I read this in his book, and uh, he was advised not to because it was a, it was a possible terrorist attack uh, target. Okay. Oh, it makes sense. I mean, you know, at, at the time, you don't know <clears throat> what's going on, who's going to be attacked next. I mean, it was, it was uh, certainly a crazy time that – None of us want to ever relive again. Yeah, it was, you know, we had construction workers running up to us saying, I have construction experience. I, and we were letting those guys through because they were willing to go to the towers and work. There was family members that we let through that they were genuine. They had a family member that was there and they needed to get through. Then there were people that, you know, every situation, I, I can't remember exactly, but there were some people that simply so I can't explain why they needed to get through where they need to go because everybody was heading in the other direction. You know, there were city buses coming from the outer boroughs with cops off duty. We were letting them through. No one told us called us and said a city bus is going to come through full of off duty cops. But those guys got through. The fire department got through and the iron workers, those guys all got through and they needed to help at the scene. Everybody that I let through pretty much was doing their part. That's a, and that's amazing considering, I mean, I, I can't, it was obvious from an outsider looking in that it was total chaos, but I can't imagine what it was like if you were there. It's, it's unimaginable um, to me what the chaos was like and the disorganization. I would say a little more controlled chaos. There was definitely disorganization, but um, somehow New York pulled through. Well, they certainly did pull through together and, um, so what, um, how is, how is the police department handling um, all these deaths and um, cancer related 
injuries from 9-11 and everything that's in, has happened since to police officers and firemen? Well, unfortunately, they had to make a 9-11 um, uh, uh, screening for just for 9-11 rescue workers. Um, cops and firemen are probably almost all of them. There are construction workers that are part of that. And um, some people have 9-11 uh, respiratory issues. I personally know people that have passed away from 9-11 respiratory issues. And I go once a year for a screening, just like anyone, not saying everyone, but most people will do the screening periodically. There is a whole list of things they look out for, and um, there is a lot of respiratory problems. Now, a lot of the people that had the respiratory problems were involved in the digging afterwards at the pit and the digging and... Right. They were there in the days afterwards on the bucket brigade. I did some of that, but it was months later um, when the digging was going on. When it, when it was more secure, I was doing the. I was a supervisor then. I was doing the security there. So still, I'm talking March of 2002. We still were not given the proper masks. Hmm. That's unfortunate. Very That's unfortunate. Yes. Yeah. Well, and doesn't the police department have some liability for that? fire department there is um there are cases of that uh you could you could um without speaking too directly on it it's because i don't right. uh, know anybody that's involved in that there are cases that have hit the news well john thank you so much for your uh relating this i think it was uh i think it's something we all need to be more aware of and know more about uh, we do have to close the program right now, and I appreciate you being on today. And please repeat your uh, email and your contact information for your missing persons website. Yes, you could reach me on uh, LinkedIn under my name. And then my email is Ferris, F-E-R-R-I-S, dot protection at gmail.com. If, if someone emails me, uh, they have a question on a case that they're working on, uh, a cold case or a question on a missing person that they want to report, um, even if it's not a case I personally do, I can refer it to someone else. Or if it's a case that I don't see as a case because it doesn't fit the criteria, um, I'll explain that to them. But I'm always open to help others on uh, what they're doing. That's great. Thank you so much. That's a, that's a good service. That's a great service. People who have missing family members or friends are in desperate need of somebody to talk to and get some help. So yes, that's a really good service. Yeah. All uh, right. Yeah. Thank Quite you. often it's just having them talk to someone to give them the guide them where to go. Very good. That's good. So thank you so much, John. Thank you for being on the show and uh, to everybody else. It's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific time here on the Voice America Variety Channel.